Breaking news. The imbalanced history of rock and roll is hitting the road, and we want you to join us for a live podcast session at Crooked Eye Brewing in Hapro, PA, on Tuesday, July 23rd at 7 p.m. Get details on how you can be part of the podcast on our Facebook page. We're celebrating our 20th episode with a party at Crooked Eye, where we will record two episodes of the Imbalanced History Podcast. Get details on Facebook or email us, imbalancehistory at gmail.com, if you have any questions. July 23rd at Crooked Eye in Hatboro, we're having a podcast party. Welcome to episode 16 of your favorite new podcast, The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. Hello. Hey, guess what, Marcus? What? We have a new first here. We have our first sponsor what? of the Imbalance History Podcast. <laughs> Thanks to our good friends at Crooked Eye Brewing on Montgomery Avenue in Hapro, a great place to hang out and enjoy amazing brews. But we want to thank them. You can find them on all the social media and online. Just uh, Google Crooked Eye Brewery. And uh, we thank the Pauls and Jeff and everybody there for their support. Our first sponsor here on the Imbalance History Podcast. So, before we reveal who and what we are discussing today, should we throw something out there? Like maybe a live podcast recording? I think you should stay tuned for our first ever live podcast session at Crooked Eye. We're getting all the details. We'll give it to you in the next couple of weeks. Keep an eye on us on uh, Twitter, on our accounts, and on uh, Imbalance History's uh, Facebook page. And we'll tell you all about it. We'll look forward to seeing you live. That'll be different for us. Absolutely. We're used to like two or three people maybe hanging with us. Yeah, it could be a lot of people, especially if we're playing vinyl and discussing favorites or something like that. Just a very interactive podcast could be crazy at Crooked Eye. We have a listener suggestion, Marcus, for this week's episode, number 16 in our crazy podcast. Uh, Eric Major, who follows us on Facebook and is a listener, obviously suggested almost at the beginning that we had to do an episode about the man who's called the father of rock and roll. I'm talking about Charles Edward Anderson Berry. That's four names. I know. That's why they just call him Chuck, I guess. I think it's easier. (laughs) Before we get into talking about Chuck, um, you got some interesting feedback on uh, Facebook this week. Tell us about it. Yeah, we had a fantastic two-part interview with Kenny Aronson. In the last two episodes. Yep. Not only did he fill in holes in the imbalanced history of rock and roll, but he had great stories to share. Like, seriously, great stories to share that also answer questions and show the direction of how rock and roll was moving back then. Yeah, it was really good insights. Thank you, Kenny. Yeah, and thank you to Tom Semioli. Bravo, guys. Great interview with Kenny Aronson. Love the work you're doing. Most simpatico with my Know Your Bass Player site and video series. Kenny is a terrific interview. We're hoping to get him on film as well. Keep up the great work. I'm listening. Sweet. Totally sweet. Tell you what else was sweet. What? The way that Chuck Berry wrote and played that rock and roll. That is true. Now, I'm curious as to how he developed his groove when things were so different musically at that time because it wasn't as edgy as what Chuck Berry was doing. Well, if you think about it, he's out there growing up in St. Louis area. He kind of is a Missouri guy all his life, right up to the end when uh, mm-hmm. when he passed away at age 90, right after releasing his last album. 
and uh, he was country. He he had an influence of country music as well as rhythm and blues and everything else that he was hearing. Like we talk about how we were like sponges with music. I think Chuck was the same way when he's a young guy. Uh, he came from a, a, a his mom was a principal and his dad was a contractor and a deacon, um, what you would call a middle class family. They were a middle class. Yeah. That's in the forties. That's rare for the African American community, and it was still segregated. And. Chuck had a wild hair up his ass. Ooh, he got he himself a... in a jam. You know, uh, a, a very difficult time. And this is before he was known for music or anything and ended up in, a, uh, I guess, it was like reform school and was sent there until he was uh, released on his 21st birthday uh, in 1947. And that's where I think the musical journey really began. Um, when people who've talked about hearing Chuck before he got famous or maybe on some of the earlier records that I'm not familiar with, uh, they talk about like kind of a country feel to it. Buck Owens has said stuff about uh, some kind of musical synchronicity there with, you know, that's that similar sounds. Yeah. But uh, I guess he figured out how he had figured out how to roll, and eventually Chuck figured out the rock part, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's when things really took off. For and, him. and it's interesting because we've talked a lot about the gospel aspect, the Pentecostal yeah. aspect of rock and roll, but we really haven't delved much into the hillbilly Americana branch of the rock and roll family tree, and that's fascinating because normally you see that more with the Caucasian musicians versus the non-white musicians due to the fact that the soul and the gospel was so big and so strong in radio at that time. That's true. That's that's something I don't think people realize. You know, people tend to think of the the gospel influence as being in church which obviously it started as but it also had a huge following in on radio am radio was monstrous with gospel and and, you know in some ways it still is uh it's kind of gone full circle but while he's uh playing around he hooks up with a guy named johnny johnson who would be part of his band for um i guess on and off for years when he had a band uh, his own band and uh, they started playing around and by 1955 Chuck makes his way to Chicago. He runs into Muddy Waters, and we haven't talked much about Chess Records and their history. Not yet. But by the mid-60s, some of the uh, success that they'd had, um, it, it began to wane a little bit. I always look at the movie Cadillac Records. It's not historically accurate, but it gives you an idea of what was going on in there. And Chuck's arrival, he's heralded as a bit of um, maybe a savior to Chess Records. And he delivers. Look at him. I mean, look, he comes out and uh, starts doing uh, his own songs, uh, you know, uh, working on, uh, reworking Ida Red into Maybelline. And uh, that takes off. And then, of course, we were just talking about the list of songs that Chuck Berry released. He has his big hit with Roll Over Beethoven. You were talking about ELO still nods to him every night. Yeah, they still close their shows with it. I saw Jeff Lynn last summer, and he still closed his show with it. Well, just a, a quick aside. If you think about it, that song, Roll Over Beethoven, to a bunch of guys from Birmingham, England, who were playing classically infused rock and roll, was the epitome of what they could do in addition to creating their own music coming out of the move and becoming ELO. So it became a natural for them. And how can you not, if you're ELO, play that sucker every night? I know. It's just too good. 
And the fact that they had the cellos and the violins to it, and it still has a meaty, big sound is right. phenomenal. Like, it's meaty as hell by ELO. I mean, don't get me wrong, the Chuck version, magical, but ELO really did it a solid. What happens for him in this period of time at chess is he, we mentioned uh, Rollover Beethoven and Maybelline and... And he writes uh, School Days and Rock and Roll Music and Sweet Little Sixteen and Johnny Be Good, which obviously is one of the all-time rock and roll songs because it put together elements that hadn't been heard before. It took rock and roll into some places that uh, it, it, it wasn't going before. It had been uh, predominantly uh, watered down and uh, targeted in the marketing area towards uh, white suburban teenagers and I guess urban teenagers back then, a lot of kids lived in the city. So now you've got this different sound and a guy who's uh, really bringing in the, uh, the bucks for the chess game. Then he gets into trouble again. And we talked about this a little bit. I, they kind of portray it well in Cadillac Records. And it's uh, the problem of uh, Chuck's dalliance with underage ladies. Yes. And it gets him in trouble again. And, and it's really sad because at this point, Everyone's considering him the father of rock and roll because he took it to places that it hadn't gone before. He created a whole mystique outside of the mainstream and then took it mainstream. You know, I also have a special place of affection in my heart for little Richard, who was uh. always, you know, well, Richard wasn't shy about trying to get attention. He was always good at his, he always, when he would give an interview or talk on TV before he would do an appearance, that his, his demeanor was always over the top. And he was quick to say, like, in the bat, who says Chuck Berry's the father of rock and roll? <laughs> so he kept going on and on and on about it. And finally, somebody said, yeah, he's the father, Richard, but you're the architect. And he was like, that's right, baby. I'm the architect. And after wow. that, they kind of set that kind of settled that. And I don't know when all that was going on. I, I wasn't mm. even sure I was born then. But late 50s. Yeah, late 50s, probably before I was even here. So that's but, one of the early rock and roll like rivalries? battles, rivalries. Yeah, yeah, Think about bit. it. Because you didn't really have a whole lot of that otherwise. There was a lot of um, when you look at uh, the Sun Records gang, they were all pulling for each other, yeah. recording each other's records and stuff like that. Yeah. But you know, you look at this list of songs, and these are all the singles that Chuck Berry released and it's like what like three i condensed it down to three pages hundreds of singles and, it, and it's and the thing is every one of those that i have check, check marks next to are songs that were, were like hits like havana moon and hail hail rock and roll and come on and things like that and then there's the big check marks the ones that really changed it for people like you know carol and back in the usa and little queenie Things like that, and no particular place to go. These are songs that inspired Chuck Berry lovers to form bands and to play those songs long after Chuck had stopped being making that the crux of his shows. And uh, that's another thing. The Chuck Beatles were Berry influenced shows. by them. Absolutely, you hear it in their music. The Stones, the yep. Beatles, everybody will cite him as the an Kinks. Influence. You have to all of them. Now he toured for a long time. He did a lot of shows. Back in those days, was he, he was, doing like two fifty, three hundred a year? Back in those probably, days, probably. And, and he, at one point, at one point, he had a band, but then things changed. And I'm, and I, we got to look deeper into this, maybe in the uh, in a future episode or in an update. Um, he no longer traveled with a band. Um, he was playing. He would show up with the car at Cadillac, or I think he had a station wagon at one point too. He would show up. He would take the guitar and the amp out of the out of the trunk, lock it up, put the keys in his pocket. Inside that trunk was a 
suitcase full of cash from the previous shows. Mm-hmm. You had to pay him cash, and he showed up, did the show. Yep. By the way, the thing that changed when he didn't have his own band every night was he would play with a local pickup band, and that was had to be in the 60s or later because when I saw him in the 70s, he was doing it because everybody in every town had at least one band that knew how to play the Chuck Berry catalog, right? Wouldn't you think? Absolutely. If you got a band, uh, if you if, if he's coming to town solo and paying musicians to back him up every night, you bet. Yeah, well, I think it was just a natural you know, part of it, too, you know, and, until things got different in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And even then, uh, my one experience seeing Chuck Berry, can I bore you with it? No, no, it's not boring <laughs> at all. Stop. It's probably exciting. There is a club over in Jersey called Alexander's in Browns Mills. And near the base, so the shows there always had a, uh, a member of the guys from the base, so it was always a bit of a, a fun affair. And we traveled over from PA because I was like, this is it. This may be my only chance to see Chuck Berry. It was in the 70s, right? Whoa. So me and my buddy Metal Mike and my wife Barbara at the time, we go over and we find Alexander's. Back in those days, we didn't have GPS kids. Uh, so we find Alexander's, we get our tickets, and we go in, and there's Chuck Berry's opening band, the local band. I won't say their name because they had a rough night. They were fine as the opening band. Chuck walks out, plugs in, and starts playing. And as he would do with what I later learned with every band was, he made sure they knew what he was going to play to start, and then he just kind of went from there, figuring they would follow along. Not the case. Really? Multiple times, I saw him go over and yell at guys while in the middle of still playing. Now, he still did the duck walk then. He still did all the all the moves and all that. This is one of the things I'll never forget about this night. And anybody who was there knows and probably remembers it, too. He goes back. He's yelling into the ear of the drummer, and he leans over and he falls off the back of the stage. What? Yes. He falls off the back of the stage. I couldn't believe it. Did he cut the show, show short or he get back up and play? Uh, uh, first off, realize that at this point he's probably 50 years old. Yeah. Falls off the stage. Everybody's gasping. The music keeps playing. And I shit you not, all of a sudden he comes duck walking up the steps that lead up to the back of the stage. Never missed a note. Played on, played the whole show. He was a little less cantankerous towards the band after that, but maybe it was because they were probably scared shitless that that they were going to get killed or (laughs) be responsible for being the band was on stage when Chuck died. They wanted that. Whoa. But that's my Chuck Berry uh, concert moment. That's kind of a cool story if you really think about it. Something like that doesn't happen very often, if at all. That's a rarity to see somebody, a great musician like that, fall off the stage. I know we read about it more in the paper, but... Right. That's only because of social media and things like that, that it seems like it may happen more than it does. But Back then, if something happened, unless there was a reporter writing about it, and there might have been a couple of reporters there. I don't remember. We'd have to pull out the microfilm. Randy the microfiche. Alexander, are you listening? Randex was a writer for them back in the oh, 70s? Oh, I don't know. Interesting. No, Randex, Randex, are you there? Wait a minute. I'm doing my math. Randy and I are about the same age. Probably not, but you never okay. know. He started young. So, you know, that's that's uh, his live thing was was always incredible, and uh, he, he was always the showman. Did he sound good live? Like, did the music sound electric and make you move and feel? Oh, yeah, it was like, great. It was oh, seeing Chuck Berry. And his voice sounded, sounded good. great. Awesome. Sounded great. 
But it sounded like it was a very simple setup, too. Well, yeah, he had he, a, a, a bass guitar and drums behind him, and he just had to have his amp set up. They did their thing, and then he walked out, turned on, walked up, plugged in, and started the show. It was, it was uh, really great as far as uh, going to see a show. It wasn't like a half hour, 35, 40-minute changeovers. Uh-huh. I don't think anybody cares about that but, part of it, but it was really uh, the falling off the stage thing was the, was the thing. Wow can't believe that and the fact that he carried a suitcase of cash got paid in cash yeah and ditched his band so he could maximize his money there's a quote that i read from chuck berry but before we give the quote i want to do um our sponsors uh, their righteous moment here on the imbalanced history of uh, rock and roll podcast uh, we are sponsored by our good friends at crooked eye brewing they're located at 13 east montgomery avenue in the heart of hatboro pennsylvania and if you got to travel a little to go see them it'll be worth the trip T- trust me good beers when you stop by you'll feel like you're part of the gang from your first visit you get to meet paul and paul brothers-in-law who started crooked eye brewing at home it's one of those small breweries that grew from home brewing yeah meet the crooked eye crew who make every night fun and maybe you'll make some new friends too meet chief brewer jeff mulheron whose tasty brews include their burrow blonde ale and a personal fave regimental lady and try their crooked ipa a sturdy american ipa with a rich golden color and aromas of citrus and pine for those of you like hops but don't want to be overhopped, it's their Crooked IPA. Hey, they're serving nightly in the heart of Hapro. Crooked Eye has the cure for what ails you since 2014. And there's more to the fun at Crooked Eye than just the brews. Check their website, crookedeyebrewery.com, for a full list of music events and other fun scheduled each month. Great brews, great people, and fun times. Next time you want a true craft beer experience, stop by for a pint and make it Crooked Eye. You will feel like family the moment you walk through the door. Or Crooked Eye Brewery. Thanks to them for their sponsorship of our little Imbalanced History podcast. Yeah, thank you very much, Crooked Eye, because this has been so much fun to do so far, and it gets more and more fun with each recording. So back to Chuck? Back to Chuck. Listen, he gets in trouble. We talked about it. Multiple with, times. And well, he gets in trouble, and he gets out of jail. Things have changed. And he signs with Mercury Records. Now, uh, the Beatles and the Stones have both had hits with Chuck Berry songs. And he- Did he leave Chess or did Chess drop him because of his legal sexual issues with underage girls or had his contract expired or were things a little looser as far as contractual law back then? Sounds like a podcast update research team thing to me because I'm not really sure about that. <laughs> Deal. He starts having hits at Mercury too. No particular place to go, which we mentioned before. Um, uh, you also had You Never Can Tell and Nadine, these are great songs, great Chuck Berry songs in the 60s uh, when things are really changing, especially here in America. You had a lot of novelty hits here in America doing really well in the radio, and then you had Chuck Berry just wrecking it. Yeah. Like seriously wrecking it with that guitar. And this is a scene from Cadillac Records that I remember. It's how pissed off was Chuck Berry when he realized that he may have been plagiarized by... The Beach Boys. Yeah. Was he pissed? Um, it seemed like he was, at least the way they portrayed it in the movie. These legal things tend to get worked out. But he claimed that uh, Surfing USA was really uh, his sweet little 16. Yeah. Let's turn him loose. Ladies and gentlemen, Chuck Berry. Sweet little 16. They're really rocking in Boston.
It was. It really was a, it was a lift, and I don't know what would make you do that. I guess you just feel like you got the idea, and you got the melody in your head, and you put words to it, and suddenly you're making it your own song. But that ended up being a whole thing. They and, used um, a lot of the, but they used a lot of the ra- the the w- lyrics and the phrasing and stuff that Chuck Berry was using at the su- same time. The whole style was exactly the same. Oh, there's no doubt about that, and that's what led to his uh, disbelief. Is probably a better way to put it. And somebody would be so bold. So, you know, Chuck goes through the 60s and, um, you know, and he's he's having some hits and and he's he built the uh, the, the palace, the big joint he built out there. He's he, he got out of St. Louis and moved out to Wentzville and really started building for his future because he was smart. He said something. And I think this might have come from his mother, the educator, said there are five things that are important in life, your health, education, making some money, and I forget what the other two were. That was his quote on the five things. Wow. So, you know, he had a, a kind of a devil-may-care attitude about things, with, uh, and sometimes that got him into some trouble. And then he kind of got back on track. But did he? Well, it's put this way. It looked that way. I mean, even then, I, I forget who was in the White House when he did, like, this big White House concert thing, and he was... It was either it, LBJ or... Yeah, I might have... I kind of see what year that was, but... Oh, here it is. I, no wonder I couldn't find it. It's all the way down here in my notes in 1979. <laughs> it was Jimmy Carter. Oh wow! So you know he's he's doing all these uh, these more mainstream acceptable things, and one of the things he did, which you alluded to earlier, he did the London Chuck Berry sessions, which is uh, was an iconic record in my household growing up, and it included on the live side uh, a little ditty called "My Dingaling," which was. Pretty big record for Chuck, wouldn't you say? Number one? Yeah. His only number one? Yeah, I think it was. And all those records that sold all those copies, that was huge. And it was a huge success again for Chess um, because they had done a series of London sessions. I have a number of them. The uh, London Helen Wolf sessions is perhaps the best of them. And I love Chuck Berry's London Chuck Berry sessions. And uh, just the whole my dangling thing, it just kind of put them in a different I don't know, in a different direction. And that's about, after that, he pretty much became a solo act. The lone wolf on the road, uh, making his way to the next town. And uh, I don't know how you survive all that time without getting robbed and people knowing you got cash. But uh, he he made it work. And And when he got older, he continued to make it work. But then something caught up with him from the past. Johnny Johnson had played on all those records, piano on all those Chuck Berry records. And... And really had been involved in the formation of a lot of the songs. And uh, I think it was through a documentary. They found him driving a bus in St. Louis. And they asked him about those days. And he said, oh, we were just making up songs and having fun in the studio. And that's when his family and he finally realized that he probably should have gotten songwriting credits. And they settled that. It took some saber rattling, but Mm -hmm. uh, they settled that. And I was glad to see that. Did he get back royalties for some of his work as well? Yeah, he did. Good. And I hope Chess and them paid him for it because they needed to. Well, I don't. And I'm sure Chuck did had to as well. It's a whole nother episode, I think, about chess, but <laughs> you got to remember at one point, Leonard Chess sold it. Uh, I think he sold it to uh, MCA, 
And so that means it's somewhere in the Universal Music Group catalog. Okay. Now, in fact, I'm pretty sure that a lot of the chess masters were in that terrible they fire, were. which we just heard about that happened 10 years ago. So. Well, we heard about the fire, but they kept from us the For information yeah, yeah. that the masters like Chuck Berry and Aretha and all of that stuff were all ruined. All kinds of stuff. All ruined. Ruined, ruined if not First burned. recording masters. Yes. And the second recording masters are good, but there's a special feel and a special sound yes. to those original recordings. That's that why they were kept in a, in a special vault with the, you know, the air dries could be the mm -hmm. perfect conditions for storing. And well, that's a whole nother we thing. We maybe should put all those recordings in the seed bank up in the, uh, yeah. Yeah, seriously, maybe it'll be seriously, there. it'll be safer there yeah. than it will be uh, in any building. You go forward, as we were talking about earlier, and once again, um, Trouble finds Chuck Berry in, in the 80s and gets accused of assaulting somebody in New York and... It's just the potty cam incident. Oh my god! Seriously, nineties, nineteen ninety to yeah. be here. Yeah, there were women who said that he had a video camera in a bathroom at his restaurant in Lens. They settled all these things out, and, and I'm glad that he had the resources to do that. And and but I think then, even as as recently as nineteen ninety, Chuck's legacy includes his incarcerations. This thing here with the potty cam, as you called it, <laughs> uh, these kind of things. It really doesn't seem to have tarnished or ruined and him or his reputation here in the 21st century and um, I don't really understand why um, some maybe it's because the era it, it happened in or the it was so long ago type thing but it seems that these kind of things were they to happen with an artist uh, today would be uh, damning if not career ending. Oh, they would be totally career ending in today's PC world. I mean, look at what's happening with Michael Jackson. A lot of people are taking his music off of radio stations and they're doing that with other artists who have, but is it right? That's in a whole different discussion for a different day. I think it is. When it comes to Chuck Berry, though, I think that, you know, the, the legend uh, of Chuck Berry is best put in context, maybe by other people who've got a little something to say about it, and I've got some great quotes here. Love to hear them. Um, I remember hearing Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee, Big Bill Brunsey, Chuck Berry, and Bo Diddley, and not really knowing anything about the geography or the culture of the music, but for some reason, it did something to me. It resonated. Who was that? Who do you think it is? Keith. Eric Clapton. Wow. I figured it was a Brit, man. Those Brits, man, they really understood oh, the music. Oh, yeah? They, they really it. understood it. I plug into a lot of old rock and roll, Chuck Berry, Buddy Holly, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis. I love all that stuff. Angus Young. Uh, this wow. is uh, yeah. It makes sense though, but if you if you look at how Angus plays, he plays totally Chuck Berry style in a lot of ways. Want to know what Johnny Ramone said? Yes. I never liked blues and I really didn't like jazz. I like Chuck Berry. <laughs> Which is a compliment yeah. for any member of the Ramones. Oh, absolutely. All right, and here's a guy who's more contemporary who I really like, Chris Stapleton. Uh, that dude can play guitar like nobody's business. He really is amazing. Great says, songwriter. I'm not reinventing the wheel here. Or should I do it in crispy? Do it in I'm crispy. Not in, I'm not reinventing the wheel here. I'm not Chuck Berry or Bill Monroe. Guys like that are from outer space. <laughs> <laughs> He's kind of right about that. That's kind of cool. They're in a whole world of their own. There's only one true king of rock and roll. His name is Chuck Berry. Who do you think said that? Steve Land Morris. Who? Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder? Yeah. What? Uh, here's a good one from Jerry Lee Lewis, a guy who was in there in the in the 50s, yeah. right? My mama said, you and Elvis are pretty good, but you're no Chuck Berry. 
Oh, oh wow! Can you imagine you're Mr. Blue? You know, Blue Suede Shoes. You're all over it. You're all over it. Radio <laughs> and everything. Your mom tells you you're no Chuck Berry. Boy, what a shot! That's right. a kick in the onions. And uh, my hero, John Lennon, maybe said it best. He said, "Should I do it, my John? Yeah. If you try to give rock and roll another name, you might call it Chuck Berry. Wow, that's pretty good. That's really good. That's a great quote from John. And Lennon. it is. Yeah. And it's interesting because so many people claim that you know called Chuck the godfather of rock and roll in a yeah. lot of ways. It's not far from the truth, but I'm curious as to what he heard that got him to where he was, what records he was listening to as a kid that helped Who, John? him. No, Chuck. Oh. That helped him find that style that he developed. Like, what was it in him that made him develop that style, that edge, that attitude? Was part of it him being in juvie till he was 21 and having an attitude and his music and his guitar playing took on that attitude of juvie they say jail changes a man that's what they say and all i'd say is that that has to be an influence but musically you got to look at where he was in the country and in the time late 40s early 50s uh in missouri right middle of the country race Um, estate well yeah but more than just that musically there really wasn't much on the radio probably gospel like we talked about and country so there was a lot of and that's why i think there's a commonality to his early sound before he really really codified it uh with people like uh, buck owens in the cal especially those california twangers well it's interesting because to the north of them you had the chicago blues right and to the south you had lake of the ozarks which was hillbilly americana so he was right st louis was right smack dab in the middle of it so yeah they got both from the south and from the north but um that'd be something uh, i gotta i have to read a lot more go back and reread a couple books and figure that out Reading is good. You know, we lost Chuck, age 90, puts out the last record, Chuck, and it had some good stuff on it, too, I might add. Are you talking about the posthumous record that yeah, came, came out? Yeah, came right out the yeah, end. Yeah, that I mean, record is fantastic. He was working fantastic. on it right up to the end, I think. Yep. Dude never varied from his style, man. His style was always Chuck Berry style. And if you don't know what that is, don't pick up a guitar. <laughs> Go listen to the records. We got to thank our sponsor, Crooked Eye Brewing, uh, right there in the heart of Happer on Montgomery Avenue, and uh, we'll be giving you some more information about them as we thank them for their support of the imbalanced history of rock and roll. Hey, before we wrap it up, <laughs> uh, we got to do the podcast update. Are you ready? I'm ready. Last week, um, in episode, these are all from episode 13. The Zeppelin episode. The Zeppelin episode. Remember we were talking about uh, reviews of the band? Yeah. I went back and I checked. Um, in 1969, Lester Bangs wasn't uh, definitely wasn't writing notes in his high school notebook. Uh, he was starting his career as a stringer for Rolling Stone. And did you know what his first review was? Sabbath? No, that came soon after. It was a panning of the MC5's Kick Out the Jams. What? what? Are yeah. you serious? Can you believe that? So he wasn't scribbling notes in high school. And uh, and in his diss of Sabbath's first album, which came shortly after them, he slagged them as cream imitators. What? Okay, and I found one where I'm, re- I'm wrong in the last episode because I kept referring to the cover of um, Houses of the Holy as On That Hill. Yeah. I forgot to mention it's just the Giants Causeway, a natural wonder of the world. <laughs> it's just, just a natural wonder of the world. And uh, didn't you mention uh, uh, them crooked vultures? I did. In that episode. 
Well, I found this article after we did that episode. And as an article now, I guess, published a couple weeks ago in which Jimmy Page reveals that he had a notion that he might be part of them crooked vultures with John Paul Jones and Dave Grohl, but that the invite never came. Um, he said it was back after the Zeppelin O2 show in London oh, back in 2007 like, or, or 7, 08, yeah. yeah. At the O2 Arena, and uh, he was jamming with the Foos at Wembley, and they were hanging, and the feeling was good, and it kind of came up, but he never got the invite. But missed it by this much. And Paul McCartney offered his bass services to that as well. Yes, he did. Which is interesting that he went with John Paul Jones. That whole project is something we should talk about sometime. Just Them Crooked Vultures? About, yeah, oh, absolutely. That. You have Dave Grohl, you have Josh Homme, you have John Paul Jones, and then you have Alan, um, what's his name, from the band Seven, who played on the back of the uh, Chris Cornell's on first solo record. Yeah. So he and he and Natasha um, Johansson, Johansson, Alan Johansson and Natasha Johansson, who was his wife who uh, passed away from cancer, were the backing band behind Chris Cornell on the Euphoria Morning record. And he's big in, like, the Seattle scene as well, so... All connected, man. It's crazy we just threw those connections together. I know. Hey, by the way, I'm starting to get into the book Loser that you gave me. Uh, it's pretty cool. Oh, there's starting some to learn so much stories. stuff about Seattle there. Just want you to know. Check us out on email at imbalancedhistory at gmail.com. You can hit our website, www.imbalancedhistory.com. Or you can check us out on Facebook as well at The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Follow us on Twitter, Raycoob Radio or Marcus in Darkus. And tell a friend because now not only are we on iTunes and Google Play, but you can find us on your TuneIn app as well. We're growing, and we thank all of you for the support you're giving us here uh, on our little crazy podcast. Well, it's time to go, buddy. I'm Ray Coop heading out the door. Um, Marcus, are you ready for the next go-round? Oh, am I so ready for the next go-round. These are so much fun that each one, prepping for each one and getting ready for each one gets more and more fun, so yes. All right, well, we'll get ready for Episode 17. Thanks for listening to Episode 16 all about Chuck Berry. Thanks to Eric Mazur for uh, suggesting it. Thank you, Eric. I'm Ray Coop checking out, and we'll catch you next time right here on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.